0: Hi guys. Cade Wilcox here, host of the Primitive Podcast. In this week's episode, we have Clay Johnson joining us. Clay Johnson has a fascinating story. grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, ended up going to handover a private school in Connecticut with George W. Bush. And uh, long story short, ended up serving alongside of him for 16 years all the way through uh, George W's uh, governorship and then obviously in the presidency. He was in charge of many things like uh, transition plans and presidential personnel. It's just a fascinating story, but probably the most interesting thing uh, to me about the podcast is just listening to Clay's different leadership insights. And uh, not only his own personal uh, years of experience being a leader, but being around leaders like Georgia W. and others who obviously, uh, you know, were some of the the most critical leaders in, in, on the world stage. So hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. Clay, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I'm really excited to have you on our show. Um, I, I was actually running a couple of weeks, uh, thinking through different guests that I could have have on the podcast, and like a lightning bolt, it hit me that I should reach out to you and, and ask if you'd be willing to come on. And I'm thrilled that you said yes. Um, I've had the the privilege of having you know multiple conversations with you because of uh, you know both of our mutual relationship with Jody Errington, who's now our congressman here um, in, in, in Lubbock. Um, but you know, many people uh, will have not been exposed to to your leadership or or, or to you, and so I'm really uh, thrilled to share with them uh, my relationship with you and, and let them learn from you. So thanks for thanks for being on the show.
1: Well, thanks. I'm honored Tade, to be asked to to uh, talk to you about leadership. And uh, funny, I did a thing last week for a friend of mine who has a company in Washington, and she asked me to visit with her 15 project managers. Uh, to talk about leadership and leadership in a, in a in an environment of crisis, and so then I get a call for you. So it's, it's good time. You know,
0: I, <laughs> everyone's.
1: I, I, like, I like talking about it. Good. Tired, well, everyone's so hungry. I I about, think, to
0: do yeah, everyone's hungry for insight into leadership, and you know, really learning. And and as as a, our audience will learn, you've been around some of the best leaders in the world, and so it's going to be a, a really really great experience. So. Uh let's start out by going through your background and, and sharing your story. Again, many of our listeners, you know, won't know you immediately, but but certainly as as you share your story, um, you know, they they will. So let's let's start by going through your background and and uh, you share as much as much as you'd like to.
1: Right. I was born in Fort Worth. My father was a rancher in Oklahoma. Uh I was a good student growing up. Um he um Felt like he never got a really didn't take school in high school or college seriously. Uh, I was a good student, so he was gonna. He hoped that I would take seriously what he didn't and uh, would really be serious about my education. And so I, you know, followed his lead on it. He encouraged me to think about going away to school, starting in high school. And so I, I was a plenty good student for the Fort Worth public schools, but not quite good enough to be considered for a prep school up east so I was tutored for a year, even though I was making all A's in Fort Worth. And uh, got to, up to the point where I was accepted by a, a school called Andover in Massachusetts. And I went from there to applying to Yale, got into Yale. And uh, I got interested in some things at Yale that could best be studied at MIT. So I went up going to business school at MIT. So about as good an education as, as somebody could get. Um, so I graduated uh, from MIT. At, it's married at this point, um, and um, so we, I came back to Texas and went to work for Friedel in 1970 in marketing. So I was in marketing positions for about uh, ten years, mostly with Friedel Then I went into a general management position with a mail order catalog mail order company in Dallas called the Workshop Collection. Roger had started this. Roger Horschau started this in 1970. It was 1960, 1970, and so it was the late 70s, and his growth had sort of flattened out, and he was uh, he was advised to hire a marketing person. So someone steered him towards me, and I went to work for him. I was with him 10 years, and it was just a fabulous place to work, really talented people, and they just need to have different different way to be shaken up a little bit in terms of how they think about the business, think about it uh, perhaps in some different ways. And that's what I helped them do, And We ended up selling the company to Neiman Marcus and um, I stayed on with them for another three years. So I had 10 years in the mail order business in a senior executive role after 10 years in marketing. Um, I had made some money when we sold to Neiman Marcus, so I had some money to be really focused on what kind of work I was going to do as opposed to just how much money I might be able to make. I was able to really think grand thoughts about uh, what kind of things I might want to be interested in or get involved in. I got involved in some nonprofit things, helping a guy uh, try to apply uh, Sesame Street to uh, preschool education, not just through television, but directly in kind of named Ralph Rogers fabulous great philanthropist in Dallas. And that was a wonderful experience. Um, the other thing I got in that I thought I would be involved in for about a year and a half was I went to work for uh, George W. Bush when he was still a candidate for governor and uh, was with him. I thought I'd be with him for about a year and a half. I was with him all 14 years. I met George Bush at Andover. He was from Houston. I was from Fort Worth. There were 22 students from Yale, not that I remember or anything, but 22 students from Yale. I mean, from Fort Worth at, at the Andover out of 740. So we Texans felt like we were Threatened by a bunch of Yankees, so we, you know, sought solace uh, in each other's company. Um, but anyway, I met this guy, and his parents were his dad was a, in the oil business, and his grandfather had been a senator from Connecticut. But he was just George W. Bush from Houston, Texas. He wasn't the, the son of a president or anything. Uh, and I was just Clay Johnson from Fort War Still, but anyway, so we got to be very good friends. Played mediocre basketball together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a wonderful guy. And we ended up going to Yale, and we were roommates all four years at Yale. So I've known George really well. Our wives are really good friends since 1961, long time. Uh, and I'll talk about him a little bit later. But uh, he asked me when he was running, running for governor, living in Dallas. Um, just about the time he was going to tee it, getting ready to tee it up, I remember vividly He and Laura asked and my wife Ann and me to have lunch with him one Saturday at Solly's Barbecue and north of Dallas and we went out there and we were enjoying the barbecue and he says he said let me tell you why I wanted you to come up here I want I'm going to win this uh governorship race we thought he had no chance because he running against Ann Richards he said I'm going to win this thing and um I want you to come down there with me and um help me set up my administration and I'm not a political person not at all. And what I think I know about politics is wrong. Um, And I said, well, so what does that mean? He said, well, the governor of Texas appoints 3,500 or 4,000 people, which is about the same number of people that are appointed by the president, uh, as it turns out. And um, so we had, there's an appointments office and the appointments office finds people to recommend to the governor to appoint to these different positions, like the people that run the, UT system, and the a and system, and the health system, and the so forth, and so on. Um, and I know you don't want really think about politics. That's why I want you to do it. You'll be focusing on finding the best people. That's my goal for you. You find the best people for me to appoint. And people like Carl Rove and the political affairs group, they'll make sure that we don't do anything stupid politically. So that's what I did. I thought I'd be doing it about a year and a half. And so I got into it. We were good at it. I got, I got really, really interested in it. We kept getting better and better at it. And, and uh, I think did about as good a job and figured out all the different aspects of it, way more than anybody else has ever done, if I do say so myself. But yeah. Um, so anyway, I was with him all the time he was governor and all the time that he was president. Um, so, that's my background. Um, were you in
0: that role? Were you in that role when he was governor the entire time or did you kind of move roles after that? Like what, I what was were in your that roles? After that. For
1: four and a half years. Okay. And okay. Uh, then he um, I didn't have policy involvement. I had nothing to do with working with the legislature except we had to get the Senate Senate to approve uh, I don't know, six or seven hundred of the appointees. And so I worked with senators um, to curry favor with them and get them Make them aware who were suggesting to be appointed and so forth and explain why and so get them on the program um, When anyway when his chief of staff Joe Alba was going to go over and run the campaign his campaign for the presidency he asked me to come up uh, to run the uh, to be the chief of staff and he said the Legislature won't be in session. You don't have to do a do political things for the legislature to help move legislation along because uh, if that was the case, I wouldn't be asking you to do it. I'd be asking somebody else. We have political um, wherewithal. Uh, but you keep the, the governor's office involved where they need to be involved and in implementing things and dealing with issues or crises or whatever, whatever. And we'll be in constant communication. I'll be coming back through town a lot. So that's what that was all about. So um, it was four and a half years in the personal operation and performance operation. and about almost 20 months as uh, Chief of Staff. The other thing he told me to do, which I'll talk about a little later is, he said, the other thing besides being my Chief of Staff, he said, I'm gonna win this presidency. And uh, I want you to develop a plan for what I do when I win the presidency. Now, I thought, is this guy full of himself or what (laughs) in the world is he talking about? And most presidents, it turns out, are reluctant to think about winning the presidency. They thought it was bad luck, bad luck. You're running for the presidency and you are counting on (laughs) luck to help you get elected. Come on. Bush knew from his father and his involvement being around the White House stuff, what starting an administration was like. And if you don't, if you wait until you're elected to start planning for what you're going to do when you're going to take office, who are you going to bring into your, be your chief of staff and then White House and so forth. You have only 75 days or so to prepare to be a good president. That's not enough. And so he tasked me with the job 18 months in advance. Wow. So one of the things I'm going to talk about a little bit is uh, the key to getting things done is you start with a picture of success and work backwards. Rarely done, must be always done um that's what he did he was already thinking about what's the definition of success his definition of success for me on the appointment side was find out what we want this person to do by talking to the corporate people on my staff and then find the person who can best do that and on the transition find out what a president has to have be be, have in place by January 20th of inauguration and figure out what we need to plan ahead of time to be able to do in the 75 days we have. And it turned out we had a plan really detailed. I love passing it around. It's fabulous if I do say so myself again. Uh, but we didn't have 75 days. We had 33 days, I think, or something because of the thing that went to the Supreme Court. But anyway, um, so that was my involvement with Bush.
0: So one, once he, okay, this was super interesting. So you, you kind of created the roadmap. Um, so he wins, you had created the roadmap. It got condensed because of, you know, that election being pushed to the Supreme Court, his his first uh, election. What what was your role for him once all the dust settled? You had created that plan. Like what was your role in his presidency?
1: What was my role in the presidency?
0: Yeah, like once he was elected and, and the plan was implemented.
1: So starting when he was elected president, I became the executive director of the transition. I had planned it. About two months before, Bush said, um, Clay, with all due respect, uh, you're, 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 you're gonna know the most about this transition, but nobody knows you. And so if I made you the the head of the transition, they'd go, ooh, uh, I need to get somebody with more name, ID who's the head of the thing. And uh, so he, I said, that's fine by me. So he made Cheney the, selected Cheney, Cheney to be the chairman and I became his executive director. So i and we conferred a lot about how to make it. So anyway, that was going
2: into it. Um, so then
1: the question was.
0: Well, like, so you, you were with him all eight years of his presidency, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was your role? Uh, so were you just the executive director of the transition the entire time? Or what'd you do after that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. No, you're good. So, memory loss. So, um, so I when I because I was the best person to do it by in the United States to be the head of the federal equivalent of what I did for four and a half years in Austin, which was be the head of what's called presidential personnel. And so, Jody Arrington, for instance, had worked with me in the governor's office for well, he was there all six years, and, and worked in personnel that whole time. And so he went up with us uh, and was one of the couple, three people that went into presidential personnel up there, because we knew exactly how President Bush would want that research to be done, that conversation to be done, because we had done it for him to his total satisfaction for six years.
0: Yeah, a long time ago.
1: Uh, And so it really worked out well. So I was, the head of a, I was the head of personnel, presidential personnel, for the first two years, and then he... T- I uh, said, Clay, uh, you, we've just about filled all the main positions. we fill all just about filled all the main positions for the first time. The new, next series of openings will be when they leave. And so you'll be recycling, you'll be moving some people into new positions, and you'll be bringing new people in and so forth. I want to make sure you stay up here and t- stay excited about it. And you may be a little less you know, jazzed up if you're kind of recycling through the, all those same jobs again. I wish you would find something within their organization, within the federal government, that you'd like to run. I don't, with all due respect, I wouldn't suggest a cabinet department, uh, but something else than that. And I said, Well, sir, actually, since you asked, the thing that I'd love to do most of all is I'd like to go be the deputy director for management at the Office of Management Budget. And he said, The what? <laughs> I said, Well, you know about OMB. And you know about the budget part of OMB there's a management part of OMB and that's that's what I would love doing because that person works with all the chief operating officers for the federal agencies and you're usually the deputy secretaries uh, and works on management policy and coordinates and help them, they can learn from each other facilitate what they're doing individually in their agencies what they're doing like one another uh, across agencies and, and and set higher goals, and um, for the federal government to be more results-oriented than it is. Uh, the federal government does not work like it should, and this is the person in your federal government that leads all efforts to make the federal government more results-oriented. I would love to be that person. He said, "You, you be it. You, that will be you." So uh, I was went over there and worked around that job, and then when I was confirmed by the Senate. I held that job for the last six years.
0: Okay, wow, that's awesome. Um, This this has nothing to do with leadership, but I'm really curious. And then I'll move on to some more leadership-oriented questions. Who who within a president, all presidents, and maybe there's some variation from one to the other, but who oftentimes yields influence on? the the most strategic roles that a a president puts around themselves. You know, you were doing appointments and and that was thousands of, of people put in positions. But who influences a president as it relates to, you know, some of the most senior and executive roles around them? For Bush, I think of people like, you know, Condi Rice and, you know, people like that. Like, who really influences... Those people who you always see at the right hand or the left hand of the president
1: well for instance those are uh they certainly the cabinet secretaries uh but also the senior people in the white House staff so one of the things that you uh one of the things that was in the tra- in the um, transition report about what you need to do, sir, is uh pick a pick pick a chief of staff and don't wait until your election day you need to pick a chief of staff um a month or six weeks or so ahead of time, so that person can start talking to you when you've got a, a spare moment in those final weeks of the campaign to start brainstorming with you about who you're thinking about for this and that and so forth. And so uh, I, that was that was to be that discussion was to be held by him, and he had agreed to have that discussion with me. Um, I think it was five or six weeks before the election, and so he said, "Well, I'm." really like Andy Carr and I've had a lot of dealings with him and he was my dad's administration, da, 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 da. and so I think um, he'd be a great chief of staff and I'm thinking he's the guy I ought to ask. And I said, well, then you ought to ask him. So we picked up the phone, and he called Andy and da, 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 da. So you started with that, and then, then he and Andy then start working on who's the chief of staff. And so uh, I'm sure the president had, a president, candidate for president, then governor, uh would want wanted condy uh to be national security advisor and wanted margaret spellings to be this and that and wanted karen hughes to be the pet of communications and people that were he was very close to and very confident in and were just uh national caliber if not world caliber people and so he had all those made all those decisions in his own mind and talked to andy about it. and then there was things in there about um You need to be able to pick, uh, um, you know, the secretaries by, we had a date which was like December 20th, have them all there and be sent to the names, be sent to the Senate so the Senate could start deciding whether they wanted to start having hearings. Technically they're not supposed to have hearings before the president is the president or the president elect is the president, but they usually uh, make an exception for a new president and have unofficial hearings just so they can have votes right after the nomination, I mean, right after the the swearing in. So anyway, um, so he started, he knew that uh, there were certain policy decisions had to be made, who the policy people were gonna be, that we would be talking to, who the the legislative affairs person would be that we could be talking to and so forth. So all those decisions internally were made, and actually what Andy started doing was, he started meeting with them as a group. So I was gonna be on the senior staff, as a had presidents, personnel, and Marcus Bellings and Condi, and so forth. So we started meeting as a group every morning during the transition, uh, just to get the chemistry, get to used to being around a big conference table with each other, and learning about what kind of sense of humor or not people had. And, and uh, anyway, we, it it was it worked out great.
0: Fascinating. I mean, it's 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 building. I mean, you're tasked with the responsibility, and, and like you said, you know this as well as anyone in the country. You're tasked with building a world-class organization in a very short period of time, you know, and it's, uh, it's it's one of my favorite parts about being a business owner is hiring and building a team, and 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 by hiring and building a team, you're building a culture, and like you had to do that on steroids in a very short period of time. So it's really fascinating. I, I got so many more questions now.
1: I have I mean, I had a from June of '99 till uh, say August first of. Uh, 2000, uh, 15 months or so uh, to pl- to develop that plan. And then he started pulling people in to share the plan with them. So, and I, but by that point I had reviewed it with Cheney. I had reviewed it with people like Josh Bolton who became the policy person and other key people, Margaret Spellings and so forth, who were going to be involved. So there was a lot of, the plan was there, but we knew what we d- had to do. And we knew by when we wanted to do it, we all agreed on that. I'll, and once the, gun went off, we then started doing it. Uh, And actually, Cheney decided it was Cheney that vice president left Cheney who decided that we were going to begin on. um, We we didn't want to wait until the election was decided. So he called everybody the White House staff to be uh, to, to Washington and he raised some money to create an office a transition office privately funded. And we started making personnel, presidential personnel decisions, or developing recommendations, before right. Bush was even officially the president. Right. And so uh, we just couldn't wait, as Cheney said, we couldn't wait, that he's was the, so such a senior guy. He had been, you know, uh, in Congress, he had been, you know, in the Defense Department, whatever, whatever, and then he just knew he could do that and needed to be done and it was that, that important.
0: That's cool. Um, okay, well, I have several questions for you, kind of, you know, your own leadership, and then here in a little bit, uh, maybe we can talk about your observations of, of President Bush and his leadership and other leaders that you were surrounded by. But how did, you know, you were responsible for a lot of things, so how did you try uh, to view your own leadership?
1: The first the first leadership position I ever had that was... Uh, not just the product manager or the assistant product manager, the product manager on Fritos or something, which I was one time. um, was I was about 28 or 29 and there was a group of, uh, for a nonprofit group uh, that had 500 uh, um, young adults, members who helped raise money for the arts in Dallas. And um, this, we used to put on a mediocre art festival, in uh, Dallas in a, inside an empty parking garage over a weekend and raised, I don't know, $5,000 or something. It was one of the things we did during the year. And um, so for one of them, I was selected to be the head of food. This is a, uh, it's, a, it's a telling story, but bear with me. Sure. So
2: uh,
1: I was the food chairman, and um, which means I brought some Fritos to sell.
2: <laughs> and,
1: um, and anyway, so then the head of this thing uh, at the end of it said, come up with your, let me have your suggestions for uh, what the food, what this uh, art festival ought to be next year. Well, I wrote an entire business plan for it.
2: <laughs>
1: Most people expected a half a page, so I wrote about a three page business plan. And uh, a friend of mine, Ron Steinhardt, who's a well-known banker and I retired many years in Dallas, uh, read it and he said, this is incredible Clay. Guess who's the head of the art festival next year? You.
2: <laughs>
1: so I took it, put together a team. I had never been the head, you know, didn't answer to anybody. And um, we put on at the first outdoor art festival, citywide art festival in Dallas history. It raised $25,000 uh, in front of the art museum in Dallas. It was fabulous. And I thought, I can do this. I, this is fun really but it started with me being figure out what the what the goal is and then figure out starting with the goal and figure out what we might do and then try to bring that enthusiasm and that mindset to a group of people and involve more people in brainstorming about how to deliver on that promise. So my whole approach of leadership is bring help the group of people it's like being a coach in my mind it's help facilitate Uh, help create a group of people and then help them be smart first of all about figuring out what's what's the goal what's the picture of success we're trying to paint and then once you've got that work backwards to focus on what we've got to do between now and whenever this picture of success is supposed to be complete is it a year from now three years from now what what what's when do we want this to happen um and so that we are focused Everything we do in the short term is related to what we want to do ultimately in the long term. Because usually it starts the other way. You say, Well, what do I want to do next week to start showing that I'm working on it? And you end up only working on it. The federal government, in particular, but most government entities, but the further away from the people you get, in this case, the federal government, the more difficult it is for the government to pay attention to accomplishing desired outcomes. Mm because you have to make difficult decisions and you, it's hard to show progress in the short term because uh, you've got to pass a bill and appropriate money. You're just getting started. You haven't accomplished anything yet. Mm. You've got to then start spending the money effectively to accomplish the desired outcome. And most people aren't going to be in, like members of the House may not be there when you start spending the money wisely. Anyway, so it's picture of success work backward to the president, George Marshall, Uh, I ran across a famous quote by him, the former uh, head of the Marshall Plan and one of the top generals during World War II. He made a comment, I don't know in what context, he said, if you pick your battle objectives well enough, a second lieutenant can write the battle plan. It's all about what are your goals? What are we doing here? I'm going to talk about in a little bit. I heard a story of a Bush was meeting with the senior people at the defense department about, I don't know what, I can only imagine. And at one point, he stopped him. He said, wait a minute, we're we're, we're moving around here.
2: What's the purpose of the defense department?
1: The people who told me about this said, these guys were looking at each other like, man, now there's a question we've never been asked before. But that's the kind of person he was. Where are we? What are, what are we here to What are we what do we exist for What is this we have at the space department for uh, We were, they were getting away from what the the picture was that they were trying to paint. So um, that's good. So in other words, so it's picture of success working backwards. And a part of all that, another a key part of it is you're doing it with a group of people. You, nobody walks in with the answers if you're trying to something significant. And so you've got a group of people, many of them super high-powered, super involved. They're the head of their own organizations, pulling the heads of these different organizations together. You can't do it with those people. You have to do it. You can't do it to to those people. You have to do it with those people. You can't order them around because they're the ones that are going to have the most knowledge about what has to happen when rubber meets the road. Uh, they know more about the particulars of the agencies involved than you do. So what you are is kind of a facilitator an enabler, a coordinator, uh, asking good questions, uh, keeping everybody on track. And you've got to do, it's a partnership. You have to do it with them. And you think, but as you are working to be successful and if you, as you make decisions, it's so that they can be successful, not you. No one will ever remember who called this meeting or, but it's, the people that put the agency together uh, that will be the ones to be celebrated. And so, what we got in the business of doing at Fortuna, I mean, at uh, in the federal government, was when we were working on some complicated thing within an agency or involving what's of different agencies. When we got to the to the end and we had been a success, when something that was a high risk operation ended up being rated a low risk operation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we would go out and celebrate with them. And the senior members of the of this of the agency would come and brag about their people, and I would get up there and brag about the people, and we'd have um, you know lemonade and uh, chips or whatever we whatever we had, and um, and and applaud them for forever changing the effectiveness of their agency. Hmm. You know, it was not about what we had, what we and the White House had done. It's what they had done for their fellow employees and all future employees. And you talk about people who were proud as punks. They just loved that. And it was all about, and that's the kind of mindset you need to create. So that I got into that early and it was, it worked great. And I could see it working in the Port when I was there. And uh, it just worked in the federal and the state government as well as the federal government.
0: That's really good. Did you have a specific approach to learning from failure? Um, I mean, I, I'm curious, like, you know, everyone talks about how important it is to learn from failure but very few people actually have a method or 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 a real intentional way of being able to document or whatever the case may be to really absorb and learn from failure. And I'm curious, I, you know, in your years of leadership and watching uh, other leaders, is there anything about learning from failure that really sticks out to you or, or you think is really critical for a leader?
1: Well, um, as unaccustomed as I am to failure, <laughs> <laughs> uh, ha, ha. Uh, to me, it's like, it's like success. It's something to learn from. And so, you first of all, you you call a spade a spade, and you call a failure a failure, or a shortcoming a shortcoming. Or an kind of example, uh, when Bush called us on something, President Bush called us on something. Um, you figure out where you fell short, why you fell short, how you can not fall short going forward, but also how you can go in and correct what, what's going on. And, um, it's, you know, it's just, you just have to constantly review how you're doing and, uh, never take yourself that seriously. Uh, if, um, you, know, you just can't take yourself that seriously, you have to admit that, uh, you're doing, you're, you're a bunch of humans and, and nobody ever said that humans are perfect. So. Right.
0: No, that's good. Um, wh- what about managing your time? This is something I've really looked forward to asking you because you know, uh, a, a lot of folks listening to this podcast, you know, myself included, fancy ourselves as really busy, right? You got families, you got kids, you got businesses, you got employees, you got meetings, and when you start to think about that on a on on a kind of federal government level and 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 the office of the president and the, the most powerful human in the world, you start to think, okay, I probably am not as busy, you know, as someone like that. And so I have two two questions for you, and you can take this wherever you want. One, I'd love to hear how you managed your time and and what you observed of other people who had to manage their time, you know, very strictly. And then the second thing is is uh I've read some, you know, material that you've written on on how to have effective meetings. And I know you have some strong thoughts on that given that you were in so many of them throughout your life and, and, and you're about efficiencies and, and results. And so the first part of the question is, how did you manage your time or or what were things that you observed about people who were effective at managing their time? Second part of the question is is just your general thoughts on on how to have an effective meeting and and just anything related to meetings as it comes to your mind.
1: Yeah, great. <clears throat> as I mentioned, I'm very analytical and a list maker, and so when someone says I got to do something, something, I say, okay, well, what does that mean, and, and uh, when do I need to do it by, and and so like when you said Clay, would you like to do this podcast? i don't have to have you that. When is it Thursday? So then you start back and back. When do I need to what do I need to know, am So I talked to him what are your questions and then what are my preliminary answers and, and da, that da, da, da thing. And out when I out what I needed to do by Tuesday, by Wednesday and here we are. Uh, and so I make lists and one of the things I'm from the list is what are the lists do I need to make kind of thing. So it's it, it's to a fault, uh, but the rumor has it that people that get into their 70s, sometimes their memory phase. I'm not saying that's true or not, but I've heard it and, I think it might be true. Uh, so you know, so, so I've got a lot of three by five cards in my pocket about when to do stuff and this is stuff I need to do today versus tomorrow and so on and so on. So I'm very disciplined that way. And people that are less disciplined that way usually surround themselves with somebody that is. Um it's one of the things I, I learned um uh, starting back in in uh, as a senior in college. Um uh, Taking uh, from a guy famous organizational behavior person by name chris Argyris, um, talk about groups he said um, you know groups it's the it's the sum of the people and they're all not alike and the thing that makes a group so powerful is you have people that complement each other and their abilities and so if you have somebody that's very analytical like I am you the next person you get another person in there brings some other things, and he can he or she can be less analytical because clay's over here kind of keep them on a you know, discipline thing, or vice versa. Or if this person is a gifted writer, I had a woman that worked for me who was very, very talented in these areas. And she had only gotten superlative ratings in her time at, at the federal government. But one of the things I thought was she was a bad uh, communicator in writing or needed, not bad, could be a lot better, more effective. And so I pointed it out to her and she was shocked uh, and I said, so don't take it as a don't take it as an insult. Take it as an opportunity. Uh, and so the answer is not you go to writing school or anything. The answer is find get somebody in your staff who is has a gift with a pen and a typewriter and you know computer and whatever. And so you tell her what you what you tell a person what you want to say, and have, they'll tell it in a very effective way. And she did that, and more within six months' time, she was the darndest, you know. Mm-hmm letter writer memo writer report writer and so forth going and so it's it's um, complementary uh meetings i mean the complementary uh teams that the i mean the people complement each other um the the thing that i do is in terms of meetings is you you start again you start what's the purpose of the meeting mm-hmm. uh what's the definition of for, for this meeting it's going to be the next next thursday at eight o'clock and it's gonna last an hour and so at the end what do we want to say we have done there and you want to communicate that to the people you're inviting and you want to um, uh, give them a have the agenda how it's organized who's going to be there and if there's material that they can read ahead of time that's relevant to that that they might if you don't distribute to them ahead of time they have to spend meeting time to read it send it to them ahead of time unless it's controversial or you know Mm -hmm. your eyes only kind of thing so and so what the meeting is related to what's the so what of the information, how might we proceed? And be realistic of what you can accomplish in that first hour, as opposed to we're gonna come out with a cure for cancer, no, we're not gonna come
2: out with a cure for right. cancer.
1: So think about what the, what, the, what the reasons are, I mean, what the, what the goals are. Um, then you have the meeting, you come in together and you're following your agenda. And the language you use in a meeting is important. One of the things is to always, the certain key words that we use, particularly in the management world, the M and B world that I was in for six years. Uh, you want to use the word results a lot. Uh, I remember being with somebody after I've been at OMB a couple of years, and we were watching the president make some speech on television during the day. And the president was talking about the results and the results. He mentioned the word results three or four times. And somebody said, Clay, the president's using that word you use all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really good. And so
1: it just, in their mind, it, it just understands about results. And another word is effectiveness, as opposed to, for instance, one of my pet peeves, efficiency. Efficiency is a very scary word to use around public employees because efficiency generally connotes we need fewer employees here. Uh, do it for less money, and that generally means with fewer employees. And efficiency can mean, uh, maybe you hire different people. Anyway, it, it scares employees. Right. And, and to be effective, you, to be effective, a subset of the meaning of effectiveness is greater efficiency, which means you have you're spending your money more wisely, and maybe you're spending what's more over here so you can be more efficient about this money or whatever so but just don't highlight efficiency you're going to raise concerns anxieties that are unnecessary so no efficiency whole lot of talking about effectiveness you also want to talk about um you want to congratulate people when somebody has a really good idea say that's a really good idea that's a really results oriented idea now you're talking about greater effectiveness. Oh, there, I use all three words in the same series of you know, of sentences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, I um, at one one time I had a meeting with the or at the end of a meeting uh, with the president. Uh, everybody else had left, and I stood waited back. And I said, "Mr. President, I have one uh, suggestion out of the blue for you." And he said, "What's that?" He said, "When you go around, you meet with employees and so forth. You." Uh, hear about what they're doing and you're you're very glad to hear them and you have great appreciation for them and you invariably thank them for their work and their service. My suggestion to you is thanks is not the right word. Thanks suggests that they're doing it as a favor. Um, Actually, these people are full-time employees. They have a goal, perhaps. They are aspiring. They had a plan that said, let's do this by this day. And when they did it, they accomplished their goal. They they ran the race in the desired time, or they got it done when they said they were going to do it. So they did something they hoped to do, and in my mind that means you should congratulate them, as opposed to thanking them. And he looked at me with a, a quizzical look and said, "Hmm, let me. Uh, I never thought about it that way. Let me let me think about that, and I'll get back to you." Well, anyway, a few days later I saw him somewhere, and he said. Call me over and I said he said I've been thinking about congratulations he said it's a little too fancy a word for me but nice job is what I feel really comfortable saying I said nice job it is that means the same thing nice job from you means a thousand congratulations from me so I mean just go get them go get them with nice job but again just recognizing even in a meeting a couple of times to have add a little lightheartedness to meetings, I used to I would take in two cards, a little big one was red i e avoid this, and it had a, a, a B on it, B stands for bureaucratic. There was another card, the same size, these are plastic cards, that was green green is good, that had an R for results on it. And I would tell them ahead of time, uh, you're probably wondering what these two cards are, which we're going to have this hour and a half discussion and so forth and brainstorm a little bit. So I hope we have lots of results oriented thinking, not so much bureaucratic panic thinking. And let's recognize it when we hear it. So I'll put it down. I, my arm got tired of using <laughs> that green R card. And they, I mean, it, I mean, they were inclined that way anyway, but it just made the point. Right uh in a lighthearted way to one was so um there are things you can do in the meeting i mean and there are things if the meeting is going to be a contentious meeting there are ways you can manage potential contention you can not put off well, if this group of people is likely to be uh sort of vehemently opposed with this other, don't see them next don't seat them with each other so you know cycle them around the thing you can also Threatened to issue yellow cards and red cards, like in soccer, if someone is overtly disrespectful of the other people. You know, which I've done a few times. And again, somewhat lighthearted, but it caused us to have an unbelievably effective meeting. Right. Um, And then at the end of the meeting, sorry for the.
0: No, this is good. No, this is good. At the end of the meeting,
1: there's a summary of what was accomplished and what the next steps are. Very clear going in and very clear coming out. What got done, what still had to get done, and where what the next steps are.
0: That's really good. Yeah, I, uh, I've i referred back to that Word document. I mean, I think it's been three, four years now uh, since you sent me that Word document where you had written down a lot of ideas about meetings and things that are critical. And it, it's really shaped how I try to approach meetings because there, that, in my humble opinion, there's nothing worse than a, a waste of time in a meeting where there yeah. are no results. I, I serve on a handful of um you know, kind of, you know, city uh, committees uh, like, you know, TIFF board and things like that. And thankfully it's led by Robert Taylor, who's an extremely effective executive of, you know, he's the CEO of United Supermarkets. So he's into results too, but there are times where it'll start lingering and you'll just feel like, okay, we're just, you know, there's nothing results oriented about this. And you just start getting anxious. So, your 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 kind of thoughts on this and and the writings that you shared with me have really influenced the way I try to uh, approach meetings and I I really appreciate it. And I need to get a lot better uh, for sure, but it's it's been really helpful. Well, uh, maybe we only uh, have uh, a few uh, minutes. Maybe the key, sure.
1: the big the overriding summary of everything you said is: what were you trying to accomplish? You started with that. Maybe you didn't use those words, but it's. What's the picture of success that Mm -hmm. we're painting as a result of this meeting?
0: Yeah. I I like using the phrase, what does success look like? Uh, Which is very similar to what you've been saying. You know, what, what what is it that we expect to, you know, to, what does success look like at the end of this? Um, it's similar to what you said about working backwards, identify the target and then work backwards. And I I like doing the same thing. It's like, what does ultimately success look like? And then what are the key kind of objectives that we got to accomplish? In order to get from where we are to where we want to go, and and where we're going is success. So I like that, and I think it's it's really helpful framework. Let, let's finish our time, if you don't mind. I I would love to hear your thoughts on. I mean, you were with uh, you were with President Bush a long time. I think you said sixteen years. Um, you know, in, in a in a vocational uh, sense, right? Working years much longer, even just relationally. And I'm really curious as you know what what your observation of of him would be in terms of you know, the three or four or two or three most significant things that you observed about his, his leadership?
1: Yeah. Well, a couple of things. Um, We talk about picture of success. He was, he was that way with me from day one. It wasn't, I mean, he would, and he, it's, it's a focus of mine. Well, he, his focus was probably genetic. Hmm. Uh, And I was in a my mind was an acquired understanding um, but he, from the very earliest on, it's like when he said, I want you to, um, come and, uh, pick, help me find the best people to do the work for our administration as governor in Texas. That was the desired outcome, the picture of success. Uh, when he said, um, to go be chief of staff, and oh, by the way, I want you to develop a plan for what I do when we win the presidency. That's the picture of success. I'm going to win it. I want to be able to spend those seventy-five days, unlike any other president, spent. I want to get more done, more effectively. So that definition of success. When he asked at the Defense Department meeting, "What's the purpose of DoD?" Those people had never been asked that question. I don't know what the relevant, what the topic was. They were talking about otherwise, but, but, um, but that's what it was. One of the things that where he pulled me down off my high horse one time in a meeting was we had the uh, we used to meet at least annually with him about talking about management stuff at the, the federal government. And uh, so I had all the deputy secretaries or the chief operating officers of the agencies there and we were talking and and uh, we were bragging about all the great work we were doing on this area and computers and HR and financial management and all these things and how we manage programs and all this transparency we had. And he said, well, Clay, that's great. I really like that. You have a scorecard so you can keep track of it. It's really great. But let me ask you, when you, when you've got all the computers you need and the HR practices and the financial management stuff and it's all—is there a guarantee that our citizens are definitely being better served by their government? Guarantee. There was this unbelievable silence in the room. I looked briefly around at the other people there, the deputy secretaries in particular. People were f- fidgeting with their papers and. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, Mr. President, I'm embarrassed to say it's not guaranteed. It's you have that gives you all the tools you need to be effective, but there are other mechanisms you have to be sure you've got that you're applying transparency to, to ensure that you are measuring in a transparent fashion exactly what we're doing for the citizens. And how does it compare to what, how we were treating them in the past? And um so just at all these dealings, it started with what are we trying to do here? What is it about? I'm talking about him, when 15-year-old version of George W. Bush, 15-year-old Bush when he was 15. He was um, he was a leader then, and it was also a guy then. He didn't think of it in those terms. Um, at Andover, they picked uh, we had we created an informal stickball league where you play baseball with a broomstick and a, a tennis ball and so forth. And it's just something to pass the time of day with um, slow Thursday afternoons or something. And the, the students, the seniors got together and elected Bush, the uh, commissioner of the stigma league, which wasn't a hard, but they just, he was the guy that would be the best able to do everything possible to get it off and running. And also people would enjoy the most being around. And he would be doing it for them, not to them, with them, not to them. And uh, the, 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 the leadership of the school picked a group of people, usually there were leaders in the senior class or the junior class to be the, um, the head of school, a group of people that were the head of school spirit. And they picked the head of that group, Bush, junior, in high school, Dorsey Bush, was selected to be the head of the school spirit squad, which was a group of all the top, most talented people in the school, in the senior class, to be in charge of school spirit. It wasn't just, it wasn't cheerleading at football games. Right. Spirit. And at the end of the, our senior year, when the uh, time was being passed to uh, somebody, uh, he said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, while the new guy's coming up, I want to, Personally, congratulate George W. Bush and his spirit leaders, because I've been at this school 42 years, and I've never seen school spirit as high it was as it was this last year. No, he didn't go to spirit. He didn't go to spirit school. He didn't go to leadership school. Right. the, 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 the his senior staff uh, Christmas his first Christmas as president um, put together. One somebody had the idea to put together a bowl and. We were going to come up with the adjectives that we thought best described him, and those, put those adjectives in random fashion around this bowl, engraved them on there, so he could have it on a key table at his house or the West Wing or whatever. And there were, we thought there'd be about eight or ten words that everybody could agree on. There were 34 adjectives. They were words like honest, results-oriented, genuine, disciplined, caring, optimistic, reassuring. All of that times five or six. Mm. And so I saw those adjectives again as his first year president. And I said, this is, this is scary. These adjectives, with the adjectives, if we had been asked at and at the beginning of our junior year to describe George W. Bush, if we were as literate as this, we had been as literate as this, <laughs> these are the same adjectives wow. we would have used to describe him. He's the same way. He was the same way at fifteen that he is as the first year of the presidency. Mm. So he brought so much to the table, and then being around his dad and so forth, you could sound how that gets applied.
0: My last question for you is: What was he like in in moments of crisis? You know, we're you know when we're recording this podcast, we're in the middle of I think all of us would agree is a crisis, both from a public health standpoint, but but equally as much as an economic crisis. And so I'd be curious as to what what you observed about him in in the moment, you know, of a crisis when everyone else is kind of in in quasi panic mode and not thinking clearly. What 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 did you observe of him in the middle of a crisis that made him stand out as a leader?
1: He was very calming. Uh, he would say when people would be we had, a, we had a constitutional or we had a crisis with the legislature and some big thing was not going to pass or whatever or we were having trouble getting some an answer for this or getting the money for that or we were we couldn't come up with an idea for doing this or um, he would say wait a minute wait a minute it's supposed to be hard have you read the constitution have you read american history it's designed to be this hard they did a really good job of designing our government to have lots of checks and balances. So for instance, one of the things we decided in terms of recommending people to him to point to key jobs is, had they ever been in a job where they're told no a lot? Mm. Because the first time you're told no should not be when you're the secretary or the deputy secretary or the assistant secretary for something, Yeah. Because it means a lot then and you, we don't want you to be shocked to be told no for the first time. And there are people that grow up that be given their whatever, whatever, they're never told no more. They just always had their way with things. That's not the case in the federal government. And so, um, it, you know, he he uh, he's, always, he's always trying to calm you down. It's like, um, first of all, you don't want to you want to say you're not allowed to be anxious. You're not allowed to be fearful. No, he never says I'm not afraid. He never says I'm not anxious. But it's supposed to be hard. So, I'm, I know it's supposed to be hard. And so, yeah, I'm going to have to work harder and be smarter, but we can do this because that's why you all were asked to be here. Uh, and that's why he asked, that's why he put on his first cabinet Don Rumsfeld and Colin Powell. I mean, so when 9 11 happened, let's see, who do we have as the head of state, head of the DOD? Okay, well, I think we got this one covered. I mean, it's just, you know, he, he goes after the kind of people that were. He knew how difficult it was going to be and the the degree of difficulty and the caliber of people he needed to surround himself with. And so that's why he placed so much attention on what is this person capable of doing if and when they're called upon to do that, because they could very well be called upon to do that.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Well, I I really appreciate you joining us. This has been a real treat for me. Uh, It's been a long time since. One more comment. Yeah, please.
1: One thing I haven't talked about in here is... uh, one of my favorite stories about Bush is, he talked. He talks about when he went to his first governor's conference and I don't know whether it was a Republican governor's conference or a national governor's conference, but he was there and meeting the governors. He was a brand new governor. And some old, some person who had been a governor somewhere for a long time, sounded like the way Bush related this. He was probably somebody from the South. He went up and introduced himself. and I'm governor so-and-so from wherever. And um, he said, governor, there are two kind of governors in this world, two kind of peoples in this world. Some governors like to be, and some governors like to do. Mm. I understand you're a governor that's gonna to like to do. That's the kind of governor you wanna be. And presidential personnel and the appointments office, we try to figure, what does that mean when we're trying to hire people, or recommend people for him? We want people who are gonna do. We don't want people who want an appointment, who want to be the this position or that position. So one of the things we found out is and looked at and proved that was a valid way of doing it is go through person a person's resume and yellow highlight the verbs. Invariably, they're all active verbs or passive verbs. Mm. You want an active verb person. Mm. They were not the assistant secretary of whatever. They accomplished a lot of data as the assistant secretary. It's what they did, not who, not what the position they had. And so... He's a doer, and so you know when you're growing up, you will look for jobs to do. Am I gonna be able to do? And then you wanna do it a resume, you wanna talk about it. Bush hadn't thought of it in those terms, so that governor came up to him his first month or so on the job as governor, but it's something we tried to build into. Everything we advised him to do, it's all about doing it. It's what we tried to build into. All the people we recommended he surround himself with, doers, and I think, he got him, and he put this capital D, capital O on them, everything that he turned his attention to.
0: It's really good. Yeah, thank, thanks for, for all that insight and for sharing. Well, we really appreciate you. Thank you for joining the podcast and, and for sharing all, all your wisdom and, and the stories. I mean, it's, it's, I, I could keep I could keep doing this for a while. So um, it's been, been a real pleasure to reconnect with you and, and thanks for joining the show.
1: Great, thanks for having me, I appreciate it.